0: I'm a huge fan of clothing rental memberships. I think it's such an amazing way to not only save money, but also have a more sustainable home where you just don't buy quite as many things. And it's also an amazing way to explore new styles without the commitment of needing to purchase everything. I recently discovered Armoire, which is a woman-founded and woman-led brand that also spotlights ton of women-owned designers on their website. All you do is take a five-minute style quiz and then you select items that you love And then styles show up at your door in as little as two days. And then whenever you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for new styles. So it's on a membership program tier, and you can sort of choose the membership you want. I ordered my first case just yesterday, and I already got the shipping confirmation for it. I have pieces on the way from Hatch, A Pee in the Pod, and so much more. I really went all out with the maternity clothes. I got dresses, jumpsuits, maternity jeans, things that I wouldn't otherwise want to buy because I really will only need them for such a limited time. I'll be sharing some of the styles on my stories in the coming weeks, but if you're interested in giving Armoire a try, they are kindly giving my listeners up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. So just visit armoire.style slash Stuff. That's armoire.style spelled A-R-M-O-I-R-E. Dot style slash real stuff to get up to 50% off your first month. Go give them a try today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. This is really a topic that I haven't spoken about a lot on social media. It's something that I plan on talking about a lot more now that I'm hosting the Real Stuff podcast and I'm going to be diving into taboo topics with my guests. But I really want to begin this conversation about money by sort of backtracking a little bit to my time at Refinery29 and even beforehand. I feel like most of the content that I produced and hosted was very, I guess I want to call it G-rated or PG-rated and very surface level, fun, and lighthearted. I was bopping around New York City, eating different pizzas, trying different lifestyle trends, exploring cool businesses, and really just being a young 20-something girl pre-marriage living my life in the city. I rarely dove into super deep emotional or taboo topics. I think partially because at the time I was a little bit afraid of being so vulnerable in that way on social media and opening up about these deeper things, but just also it didn't cross my mind to go there because my content just felt so light and easy. But if you have followed me In more recent days, you may see that my content has evolved, and my content these days has a little bit more meaning behind it, a little bit more purpose. I want to be talking about the important things, and I want to be talking about the topics that we all think about all day that not many people are discussing. One recent day, a couple months ago, I had this idea on a whim. Once I knew I was about to start this podcast where we would be diving into sex, money, and mental health, I had a moment where I said, oh, wouldn't it be really interesting if I just put one of those question boxes on my Instagram stories and I asked people to share their yearly salaries? At the time, I just asked, can you share your age, the field you work in, and what you bring in every year? In hindsight, I probably should have also asked for the location that they lived in because cost of living is different everywhere and salaries are adjusted accordingly. But next time I do the box, I will ask location. This time I just put the box up and had very low expectations for what I was going to get in reply. I wasn't really sure about this one if people were going to participate because this is a big, a big ask to. Type to an influencer or a content creator that you follow a number that is probably a big secret to many of your closest friends and family members. And listen, I get I'm a stranger to you all, but I can see how it might be a little nerve wracking to share that number with someone who you follow on social media, knowing that they are going to see your number and your name. But I put the post up and before I knew it, hundreds of replies are rolling in. Before long, it's in the thousands. And this was so shocking to me because I had never received engagement like this. You know, thousands of people, but literally by the second, there were 50 more, 100 more. And I was reading through everyone's answer. I was incredibly intrigued. And I just knew that people were kind of on edge waiting for me to share the results. If you miss those stories, you can go to my Instagram stories right now. I have a highlight that I pinned to my profile. It's called Salary Secrets. You can go through it. As I was going through these replies, I saw a ton of comments coming in from people asking me to open up about my numbers and my salary. When I f- when I saw the first one of these requests, my heart started palpitating. <laughs> and then... When I saw that there were multiple people who were putting in this request, my heart just sunk. I had no intention. I had literally zero intention of opening up about my numbers and being vulnerable in that way after I posted this question. I really wanted people to be able to submit answers anonymously, and I was, of course, only going to share them anonymously. There was no part of me that had any intention of opening up about The numbers in my own business. But as soon as I started getting those requests, it was hitting me that, wow, I'm about to start a podcast where I'm going to be the host of these deep conversations. I'm going to be asking other creators and other guests on my podcast to open up about their numbers and their deepest thoughts. Yet I myself haven't even shared this information of my own. And it was almost a moment of Who am I to host this podcast and who am I to ask other creators to share how their businesses are doing if I'm not transparent about it myself? So I took a little moment to collect myself. I thought through what people were asking of me and I decided to go for it and I decided to open up about it. And you know what? I am so happy I did because of two reasons. Number one, it took a huge weight off me going into the start of this podcast, knowing that I've opened up about that, knowing that it's actually still pinned there to my highlight today. And of course, I'm going to talk about it more in this episode. It really took a weight off of there are no secrets here and I am an open book and I am sort of practicing what I'm preaching in terms of being transparent and talking about taboo topics. And secondarily, one of the reasons that it felt good is because the feedback that I heard from all of you was so overwhelmingly positive. It seemed like you all were really grateful that I did that. I think people in all sorts of career fields found it interesting. So it wasn't just like people who want to be content creators or video personalities got use out of it, but I think people just found it interesting and useful and educational. So I'm happy I shared it and I'm really happy to be sitting here And recording this episode today. In today's episode, you are gonna hear every single salary that I ever made in the media world, in any job I've had. You are gonna hear every single amount of rent I've ever paid in my New York City apartments over the years, from my first apartment all the way to my last apartment that I lived in with Michael before we moved to the suburbs. I'm just gonna be an open book and I'm coming clean. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right word, but. I'm opening myself up and sharing all this information. The influencer world and the content creation world is such a unique one because there are so many preconceived notions about it out there. I think my opinion of this world is that there are two types of people out there. People who either look at influencers as total celebrities and think, wow, they're just living the high life. They're traveling everywhere. they are getting PR packages. They have all these products. They must be making so, so much money. And I think on the other hand, there are people who look at any influencer or any content creator as someone who must be struggling and someone who it's not even a real side hustle. What are you even doing with your life? This isn't a real job. And that discrepancy is so interesting to me because people either think you are crushing it or like you must be really suffering. And as someone on the inside, I can tell you that there's no blueprint for how an influencer or a content creator is doing financially. And it's it's not necessarily something you can tell from the outside by looking at their follower count, for example. When I tell you that there are so many content creators out there that I know personally, and then many more that I just know of, that have millions and millions of followers and have Tons of people consuming their content daily, but they just don't have the entrepreneurial wherewithal to turn it into any sort of monetizable business. I'm not lying. On the flip side, there is a whole category of people who would be considered micro-influencers who maybe have five-figure followings. In some cases, four-figure followings. So under 10,000 followers, but because of their business savvy and the way they know how to create digital products or use affiliate marketing or create UGC, which is user-generated content for brands, they have a robust, thriving seven-figure business from the digital space. And there is no blueprint. There's no real way to know. So unless a creator is going to come forward and share how much money they're making, it is really hard to tell. I've realized that money is such a taboo topic, specifically around salaries and income that even amongst my closest friends, it's not something that we talk about. I actually have one really close friend in my industry who I do this with, and I want to bring her on the podcast because I think we have a very rare, beautiful relationship. But in general, for some reason, it's so taboo to talk about numbers. And I don't think I can dive into this conversation and share a moment more about jobs and my business and any of that without first upfront acknowledging that I myself came from an incredibly privileged background. And I think it's really important to share here that I was fortunate enough to graduate college without student loan debt. And I say this because, of course, there were plenty of people from my well-off town that have not had a lot of success in business. So I'm not saying that being from this town means you're automatically going to be successful but i can't deny the fact that coming from this town which means i had this safety net which means i had a ton of resources and connections was able to go to college and meet people that meant more connections and internships that was such a solid foundation that led me to be able to get into those first positions that i had that snowballed and led me to where i am today and I can't say with certainty that if I had graduated college with a mountain of student loan debt that I would have been able to dive into the fields and the the path that I took. When I graduated college in 2014, my first role was basically a summer internship. So I, of course, wanted to get a full-time job out of school. And I was immediately comparing myself to my twin sister, Allie, who worked in finance, and the other friend that I lived with who worked in a consulting role, and both of them had these really robust salaries right out of school, really high-paying jobs. And I, being the person who chose to go down the media path, I sort of knew up front that my income was maybe going to be lower at first than theirs would be, but I was hoping that I would get a full-time job with a salary and with benefits, and I didn't. So my first role out of school was at Ogilvy & Mather, 2014. As I mentioned, I was a summer production intern, and I actually just found the job offer sheet recently, and the pay was $20 an hour. It was $30 for any hours worked overtime, but for the 40 hours in a week, $20 an hour. I remember being okay with this starting number because I loved the industry. I was really excited about the projects, and a lot of the other students in the internship program were actually college juniors, and I was a college senior at the time who had just finished school. So a lot of the other students were going back to college. And so I was just one of a couple people in the program who were potentially going to be hired full-time at the end of the summer. So I worked really hard over the summer and wound up parlaying that $20 an hour internship into a full-time job. And my first salary at this advertising agency was $55,000 a year. I remember just being really excited about making $55,000 a year. I felt like this is the start of my media career. I'm exactly where I want to be. And within about a year, I was able to get a small raise to 60K a year. And that was when I met someone at Ogilvy who wound up bringing me over to Refinery 29. Refinery 29 is where I really consider the start of my media career, even though I was technically doing production and media things at Ogilvy and prior to Ogilvy. But Refinery29 was really that first on-camera job where I was starting to build up myself as a personality. So Refinery29 is definitely where I feel like my story begins. And I remember I met this woman at Ogilvy. She was one of the heads of the creative department. I had a meeting with her where I was able to show her all of my content. I showed her everything I made in college, everything I was currently working on. A couple of months later, she wound up moving to Refinery 29 to be the COO, the chief operating officer. And her role at Refinery 29 was build up the video team and start pumping out video content. So when she got there, she thought of me and she contacted me when I was at Ogilvy and tried to get me to come over. So I met with the video people and they asked me what's your salary at Ogilvy because we want to bring you here. In hindsight, I don't know if it's right. Someone write to me and tell me, are you supposed to tell people that your salary is higher than it is so that you know you're going to get a higher offer? Because I don't think I knew what to do at the time and I was a little nervous to lie. So I told them my salary is 60K and they offered me the exact same salary. I remember getting the offer and feeling Equal parts excited and a little let down. So on the one hand, I was let down because I had in my head that if you're going to change jobs, you always want to be moving vertically, not just laterally. So I didn't necessarily want to take a job at the same pay, but I was excited because the role they were offering me was a role that they let me create, and they let me write the job description for it and create the title, and I was really coming in as an on-camera personality, and a video producer, which is not the role I had at Ogilvy where I was very much behind the scenes. I was a creative producer. And so this role at Refinery29 sounded more interesting to me, but it was a lateral move in terms of salary. Somehow I convinced them. I I remember putting up a little bit of a fight about the fact that they were offering me the same salary. And after, I don't know, a couple conversations, someone from Refinery29 came back to me and said, okay, Lucy, we can offer you $2,000 more dollars. So my salary, my first offer at Refinery29 was for $62,000. And I took it. I said yes. So I want to pause here and dive a little bit into rent. And this will all kind of make sense why I want to talk about rent here. But My first apartment that I lived in in New York City, which is the apartment I lived in when I had that Ogilvy job and also during my first months at Refinery29, this was a two-bedroom apartment that we flexed into a three-bedroom, meaning we built a wall up and created a third room out of half the living room. The total rent for this two-bedroom apartment was $4,000 a month, and I split it with my sister Allie and another friend. And because my sister lived in the big bedroom with the ensuite bathroom and my other friend lived in the other bedroom with a bathroom across the hall, and I was the one who lived in the flex bedroom with the fake wall we built up, I had the ability to pay the lowest amount of rent. So we didn't divide the 4K evenly by three. Instead, I paid a little bit less. So my rent was $1,200 a month. If you do the math there, you will see that my starting pay of $20 an hour or even my first salary there of $55K at Ogilvy is not enough to cover me paying $1,200 a month of rent. So the question is, how did I pay rent? And I think this is where it's important for me to just open up a little bit about my eternal entrepreneurial drive and the side hustles that I always had from the very beginning. This side hustle business really started out with stop-motion videos. I remember being an employee at Ogilvy. There were a couple days when I didn't have a lot to do and I sort of locked myself into a conference room with a camera and a tripod and I just started filming stuff and capturing stuff. I pulled all the photos and footage onto my computer afterwards and I played around with it and I created a really fun stop-motion movie. I remember when I saw the finished product of this, it was like a light bulb turned on in my head. All of a sudden, I had discovered this art form of stop motion video. Making this video was so much fun that I started going home every single day after work, running back to my apartment, taking my iPhone, taping it onto a chair, flipping the chair over, filming this little scene on the ground, taking any inanimate objects I had or any food I had in my apartment and just making them animate with stop motion. And I was having so much fun. Every video I made, I would upload to Instagram. Every time I uploaded, I was using hashtags. This was during the time when it was actually relatively easy to build a following on social media if you were creating something visually interesting or artistic. And if you posted consistently with the right hashtags, those days are long gone. But this was sort of bringing me a small audience of people. Now, bear in mind, this was not an audience of people that was interested in me, Lucy. I don't even know if they knew who was behind the camera, but it was people who were coming to me for the artwork I was creating and for the stop-motion videos and the creativity. I will always remember the first time a brand came to me and asked, how much do you charge for these videos? This was an e-commerce brand, and they said, we'd love a 15-second video for Mother's Day, and how much do you charge? At the time, I had zero idea of what I could possibly say in answer to this question because what do I charge? I charge nothing. I do this for free every fucking day. I don't charge anything. And I sort of just pulled the first number that came out of my head and and said out loud, "I charge hundred dollars." Very, very luckily, the woman on the other end of the line felt a little bit bad for me and you know took a moment and then said, well, we actually have $500 for the project if you want that. I just paused and said, sure, yeah, I do want that. After that day, I started just telling brands that my rate was $500. This woman basically gave me a little bit of a blueprint of what a brand might have as a budget for a video like this. So I just took that on as my rate. And I told every other brand that came to me, I charge $500 for a 15 second video. By the way, I'm saying 15 seconds because if you remember at this time, 2015 on Instagram, the max video length was 15 seconds. A few months down the line, a brand comes to me and I have this thought of, what if I just double the rate I'm asking for? So what if I ditch that 500 and I just tell brands, I charge $1,000, how's that gonna play? So I tried it. And the first time I tried it, a brand said, Great. We're happy to move forward at that rate. So my new rate became $1,000 for a 15-second video. And then enter Soul Cycle. And I'm very comfortable sharing that this was SoulCycle because I didn't sign any sort of NDA. I will always remember when SoulCycle contacted me and asked, how much do you charge for a video? We'd love to create something fun around July 4th. I had a moment where I said, I can't tell them $1,000 because I know the price of a SoulCycle bike and the amount it costs for a class. And I know that SoulCycle is making so much money, probably more than that rate, for just one class, let alone all the classes that they have every day in all the cities they have studios. So they can afford more than $1,000. And I remember thinking, I don't know what number to possibly throw out here. I don't want to be obscene and throw out something way out of the question because This is probably the biggest brand that's ever come to me and I don't want to lose them. So maybe I'm just going to put the ball in their court and ask them, what is your budget for the partnership? Many content creators know that this conversation could potentially lead you down a dark, never-ending road of you asking the brand what budget they have and then them asking you what rate you have and then you telling them, well, that depends on what budget you have and them telling you, well, our budget depends on your rate. And basically, no one just wants to be the first person to throw out a number in case they are way higher or way lower than what the other person was thinking. But I tried the tactic and I said, just let me know what budget you have. And they took a couple of days. And I will always remember SoulCycle came back to me in an email and said, hi, Lucy. We're so, so sorry. It's it's getting close to the middle of the summer. Our budgets are really tight right now. So for this 15-second video, we only have a budget of $4,000. Remember, that was four times what I had ever been paid for a similar project. And I read this email. I take a moment. I actually screamed. I called my parents. We freaked out on the phone. And then I calmly replied in email, hi, I think I can make that work. And that's not to say that my rate from then on became $4,000 video, but that did sort of teach me that every project was sort of to be determined based on what the brand was, what the scope of work was. And I really had the power as the creator to say, yes, I want to do this partnership. Sometimes I would say my rate for that is $3,000, and a brand would say, well, we only have 600." dollars And then it was up to me to decide, is this a brand I want to work with? Is this good for my portfolio? Is this going to be fun to shoot? Do I want to do it? Yes or no? It's all up to me. And remember, this is all side hustle income. This is all side money. So I had my set fixed income from the job I was working at, and all of this was work I was doing on the weekends or at the end of the day. So if you remember, I said I was making $55,000 a year my rent was $1,200, the only way I could pay my rent every month was through having these side hustles. And the fact that every month I was doing at least one, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes five of these projects shows you that my rent was always covered by my side hustles, which made me realize that my whole salary of 55K could go directly towards things like savings or my day-to-day fun expenses in New York City or investments. And as I mentioned up front, when I talked about having no student loan debt, this is an example of how coming out of college without that debt allowed me to start building up my own wealth as a human and allowed me to start saving. So now I want to keep moving on with my career growth and the salary changes along the way. And then I will backtrack to the other rents that I paid after this first apartment. When I got to Refinery29, I was sort of thrown in as this young, scrappy producer who had the opportunity to be the face of their budding video department. There was very little salary transparency there and... I really don't know how my salary stacked up against other employees. I think it's interesting if some other refinery twenty nine employees are listening to this because I don't know what anyone else was being paid there. I remember that I started at sixty two thousand and very slowly over my five years there, my salary rose and rose. I was first promoted to seventy k. My next promotion was at eighty k. Eventually, I got to ninety k. And I remember at a certain point my Role at Refinery 29 was becoming one that was relatively important for the brand because I had created this YouTube series that a lot of brands were interested in. A lot of third party companies wanted to buy episodes of Try Living with Lucy or Lucy for Hire. And I wasn't necessarily privy to the deal terms of those partnerships, but I do know that oftentimes brands were paying Refinery 29 hundreds of thousands of dollars for partnerships with them. And part of those partnerships would be a custom episode of my series. And at least at the start of my time at Refinery29, I wasn't getting paid any extra for that. By the end of my time there, once I had kind of carved out my own little talent deal with the company, I was able to get an extra fee anytime a brand used me in their content. But in the very beginning, my salary was it. But very quickly, as I started at Refinery29 and pretty much within a year of me being there, that's when I would say my influencer career started growing. That side hustle that I was telling you about of creating stop-motion videos, once I got to Refinery29, that sort of took a little bit of a new shape because all of a sudden I was the host of this YouTube series and the audience was very clearly demanding content with me in it. So anytime I posted on my feeds, my face or my family or my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, that's the content people wanted to see. And I very quickly kind of navigated away from just being a a hands-on stop-motion artist where I wasn't in the content to being the face of the content. And I would often, I would really try to keep my artistic creative flair there. So you probably know that I've created a lot of stop-motion content that I'm in. And I try to make my regular content as creative and as well-produced as possible. I always have considered myself a creative producer. My content did really navigate away from being just stop-motion content. And it turned into more classic influencer content at that time. And in those early years, I was having brands starting to reach out to me To ask if I would do a little post on my Instagram about the brand. In the very start of my years at Refinery29, I was managing these incoming brands all by myself, just like I had done with the stop-motion business. I was just making up numbers left and right. It was very much fake-it-till-you-make-it industry where I had no concept. The only way I would possibly know what I could charge a brand for a post was by talking to other people with platforms and gauging, you know, what is their engagement like? What is their following like? What have they charged brands in the past? Maybe I can use this as somewhat of a blueprint. But really, there were no rules. It was all just a big question mark. And I was sort of making up numbers left and right, but I have to say it was going very well. Pretty quickly, that side hustle money that I was making from just working with brands on my own, off Refinery29's platform, but on my own platform's, that side hustle money was becoming a way bigger pot than my salary. My highest salary that I ever got paid at Refinery29, I think, was $95,000. And don't get me wrong, that is a very high salary. I'm not in any way complaining about that number. But it does sort of blow my mind that the year I made $95,000 as a salary at Refinery29, my side hustle business of being a creator and working with brands on my own Brought me more than three times that salary. So it just sort of goes to show that the set salaries are often capped, whereas the entrepreneurial spirit and that side hustle energy, there really is no limit and there's no rule book. And the amount you can really make in this industry off on your own is really up to you and how you negotiate for yourself, how creative you are, how many deals you take, and how you price yourself. In 2019, I made the decision to leave Refinery29 and sign with a talent agency. I began my own S-Corp, so I created a business called Lucy Fink Media. And the way my business operates today is that I, Lucy Fink, the individual, am an employee of my business, Lucy Think Media. On this podcast, I'm not going to dive into all the reasons why I started an S-Corp versus an LLC, or I'm not going to dive into the nitty-gritty details of what an S-Corp is as an entity. I think that could be a really interesting conversation with an accountant in the future who can maybe share more. All I'll say is that I was advised that an S-Corp was the most beneficial type of corporation for me to create. And my accountant told me that there's a certain percentage of your total income that in an S Corp, it makes the most sense from a tax perspective for you to assign as your salary, meaning that's the set amount that is going to flow through and be paid out as a salary to you, the individual, month over month. But because this corporation, Lucy Think Media, is me alone, I'm the sole employee, I'm the owner, I'm the president, Because of that, I don't really consider the salary that I've arbitrarily chosen for myself to be my salary. I myself, Lucy, think of the business's total gross revenue in a year as my income. Even though that full amount doesn't technically plop into my personal pocket, that is still my money that I can, you know, after taxes, take out as my own. I look at the business's revenue as my marker of how I'm doing. In business. I got into this a little bit at the end of that Instagram story set, if you watched it, but just to share the details. So I pay myself, I've chosen to pay myself a salary of just over a hundred thousand a year. I think it's like nine K a month gets paid out from my S corp to Lucy Fink, the individual every month. I shared in the Instagram story highlight that in 2022, which was my highest year yet, I came very close to having a total gross revenue Of seven figures. So it was like 960 something K for the year. 2023 actually dipped down a little bit and I'm very well aware of why that is. And that's because that was the year that we moved to our new house. And I basically took two months off of doing brand deals to get settled in this town. I actually had tons of partnerships that I had to do with furniture companies that were not paid partnerships, but They were just part of my homeowner series, which was not a paid series. And 2024, I am expecting it to be a little bit interesting because I am starting this podcast, which is very brand new and is not yet monetizing at the point at which I'm recording this. I am hoping that eventually over time it can start monetizing in a number of ways. I think it'd be really cool to do a podcast tour, maybe have podcast merch, ad sponsors. There are a lot of ways you can monetize a podcast, but I do expect this year to potentially have a lower income in terms of my brand deals because my time is being spent on the podcast. But I guess you never know. This could open up new doors and other forms of business revenue that I don't know about yet. So I'm excited to see where this year takes us. I want to go back to rent now. So I mentioned My first rent was $1,200 a month. After I left that apartment in Times Square with my sister and my friend, that was when Michael and I first moved in together. And our first apartment together was in Chelsea. It was a one-bedroom apartment, and the apartment cost $4,500. And every time I lived with Michael up until we got married, we split our rent 50-50. So that means my rent bumped up from what I was paying in that first apartment of $1,200 to being $2,250 a month. From there, we moved to our most expensive New York City apartment together. We really, when we made the decision to move into this Cornelia Street apartment, we knew it was going to be a big expense, but this is how we thought of it. So first of all, I just want to share. We lived on Cornelia Street before the song came out. So I had never heard of this street. I actually remember I was away on a trip, a work trip, when the song came out. And I opened my Twitter and I saw that my street name was trending on Twitter and I freaked out. I thought, you know, something had gone horribly wrong on my street. And then I listened to the song and realized that Taylor Swift just used to live on it. But nobody really knew that before. I shudder to think of what this apartment costs now, now that the real estate on Cornelia Street is so hot. If anyone, if you don't know Cornelia Street, it is this Incredibly short street. I think it's like, don't quote me on this, but I think it's like 700 feet long. It's a really tiny cobblestone street and there's not a lot of real estate on it. And we lived in this beautiful corner apartment that looked uptown. You could see the Empire State Building from the window. This apartment was a two bedroom apartment, it was recently renovated and the rent was $10,000 a month. So remember, Michael and I were splitting that in half, so we each paid $5,000. By the time we moved into this Cornelia Street apartment, I had my business. It was fully functioning by then, and my accountant told me that because I worked from home, I was able to look at that $10,000 rent, and I was able to do the math and figure out how many square feet my office was divided by the whole square footage of the apartment and i was able to see what percentage of the full rent was going to my office and then i was able to pay that exact amount from the full rent from my business remember the rent cost 10000 and because michael and i split it in half we each paid 5000 and after i did all the math to find out what fraction of the apartment could be covered by my business i realized that my business could pay of my $5,000. So then my personal rent wound up being $3,800 for that apartment. And our last apartment, we actually had a little bit of a COVID discount. Our apartment was actually way bigger than that first apartment. It was a three-bedroom and it was on the Upper East Side and our rent in that last apartment came to $8,000 a month. Once again, we, even though at this point we had combined finances and we were married, we still have our own bank accounts. So we each paid $4,000 for that rent. And out of my $4,000, I did the math again, and I was able to have my business pay a portion of that rent appropriately based on the square footage of the apartment. I'm sharing these numbers because what's so interesting is when I lived in New York City, I never felt comfortable sharing my rent. I remember people would ask me under my videos, what do you pay for rent? And it just felt so taboo I don't know if it was because of safety reasons, like not wanting to share the rent because then it made it a little easier to find the apartments online. I don't really know. That definitely crossed my mind. But a big reason was because I knew in my head that these were big numbers. And I think I felt a little self-conscious about how much money I was paying in rent. And now that I think about it, like now when I actually look at the numbers and when I actually look at the side hustle income I was making every month, I realized that these rents were appropriate rents for me to be paying based on my income. The fact that the most rent that Michael and I together were ever paying for an apartment was $10,000. And I think about how at that point, many of my brand partnerships were paying me $10,000 or more and I was doing multiple of those partnerships a month. That reminds me that this rent was appropriate for The level that my business was operating at. But it's interesting because at the time I felt so ill equipped to talk about rent. And I think it was mostly because I didn't want to share the revenue numbers to sort of back everything up. Not that anything needs backing up, but I didn't feel like I would be able to explain to people how, yes, this rent is high, but here's how my business is doing. And here's how much it works for me to live in this space and pay this every month. So I'm excited to be opening up about this because I know it's such a taboo topic, and I'm even more excited to bring people onto the podcast and ask them these questions and see how their answers go. Remember, I'm not expecting everyone to open up about these topics, and I think many people are going to be uncomfortable sharing numbers like this, and that's okay. I think it's interesting for me at the stage of life I'm in where I can acknowledge that I felt that way at another point in my life and that now I'm in a different place. It will be interesting for me to talk to people and hear about what stage of life they're in and why they maybe feel the way they feel when it comes to their businesses. When I shared the salary secrets, I think a lot of you found it really useful, specifically people who heard people who were in similar fields to them and saw how much they were making and maybe, you know, took a little note to yourself that you can be asking for more. That's the type of conversation that I want to spark on this podcast. And I'm, I don't necessarily expect that a majority of people listening to this are content creators or in the media industry in any way. So I don't know if this episode will be totally useful for you in your business and your career goals. If nothing else, I hope you found it entertaining and interesting to just hear an inside look at someone else's business growth and finances and rents, you know, really at the end of the day, I hope you just take it for what it is, which is just a human being opening up about topics that are not frequently shared. Whether or not we work in the same field, I am curious to hear how listening to this podcast felt for you. Like what was the experience of sitting on the other side, listening in headphones or in your car or wherever you are watching on YouTube What was the experience of hearing someone come on and share these numbers? Let me know if there's anything I mentioned in this episode in passing that you thought was interesting that you think could make a full episode of its own. And remember, I do bring on celebrities and creators and influencers, but I also let my audience members call in to have conversations about interesting topics going on in your life. So if you want to apply to the show, you can always visit lucythink.com slash apply you can select from the drop-down if you want to talk about sex, money, or mental health. My team is reading through submissions. We're reaching out to people who we think would make an amazing fit on the show. I really can't wait to talk to you These solo episodes are fun, but I'm really excited to be present with another person sitting across from me. Don't forget to go to the Apple Podcast Store and write a written review if you get a moment. If you do write a review, please take a screenshot of it and send it to me personally over Instagram DM, and I will pop back with a personalized voice message because I love meeting you all and it would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Real Stuff. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Real Stuff. I'm Lucy Fink. Don't forget to follow the show on social media at The Real Stuff Pod. And if you're liking these episodes, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. It helps the show so much. And if you're feeling called to come on the show, visit LucyFink.com/slash apply and tell us your story. We'll see you next week for another intimate conversation on the real stuff. Seeking the truth never gets old.